Father, we thank you for your gracious invitation that invites us to lay aside our confidence in any other thing but you and to fix our eyes on you. God, we thank you for the grace that you have richly lavished upon us. Undeserving sinners yet clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, sons and daughters of the living God. So we sing and declare this morning, hallelujah, thanks be to God that all we have is Jesus, that he is our life. And so now, Lord, as we come to hear your word, I pray that our hearts will be ready to receive it. Help us to respond in worship as we hear your word and learn how to follow you. We thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can take your seats. It is surely good to be here at Christ's Covenant today. When Johnson Ferry had the vision of planting a new church in Buckhead and hoping that God could use a new fellowship here to really proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, you can imagine how exciting it is for me to be here today and see all of you here and realize that is a reality and so thankful for Jason and Paige. As a matter of fact, today, in honor of Jason, I wore a suit. <laughs> the last five times I preached, I've been in jeans. But today, how many millennials, y'all, can pull off wearing a suit like Jason does? I mean, that's, that's really, it's retro 50s he's bringing back here into the 21st centuries there. So today I dressed in honor of Jason, but also very thankful for how God is using Jason and Paige. Y'all, I hope you realize how incredibly gifted they are and how God has his hand on Jason in leading this fellowship. Would you just show your appreciation to them because they really are doing a wonderful job here in leading this fellowship. And Jason, the way this place is growing, y'all gonna have to start two services. It's gonna have to happen. Now, I realize for some of you think, you've got such a wonderful feeling. You know, you, every church tends to develop a holy huddle where everybody's just glad to have our group. But you know, the church exists to glorify God, and the mission of the church is for those who are not here. People all around Buckhead, Brookhaven, Brookhaven all over North Atlanta that aren't here today that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So as you face growth challenges and growing pains in the years ahead. Man, I'm going to continue to pray for you because God has his hand on this fellowship. God has his hand on your pastor and your staff and your elders and no telling how God is going to use this church in the years ahead. Now I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 2. If you're new to Bible study, this is a text that is very well known in a lot of ways, but it is seldom preached, especially within our denomination. So the title today is Jesus the Winemaker from John chapter 2. And recognizing that as we look at the Word of God, it's not just the words of a disciple of Jesus, but this is the inspired Word of God and in honor of Him. Let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. Will you join me in standing? John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And then his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled him up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter, call, head waiter called to the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Father, as we stand before You, realizing that we're standing before our Creator, the King of the universe, the reason we exist. And Father, as we stand before You today, every one of us needs a word from You. And Lord, may we seek to understand you through Jesus. And may we understand this first miracle of Jesus and the impact this can have on our lives. So Father, we give you this time as we pray in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. On January 13th, about six years ago, I preached this text at Johnson Ferry. And at Johnson Ferry, we observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday in what we call our bridal suite. There are a lot of folks from all kinds of different denominational traditions that love having the Lord's Supper every week. So we serve it to individuals in a small room we have there at the church. A couple of deacons serve it. There's a kneeling rail. It's a very meaningful kind of time for a lot of folks between services. So our new deacon chairman had just heard this sermon on Jesus turning the water into wine. And he went to set up the Lord's Supper, which would be a couple of trays of juice and a, a plate of bread there that he would take to where he would be serving individuals the Lord's Supper that day. And he walked in the room to set the trays up and he saw that it was all ready. And he thought, well, wow, this staff is really on the ball. I don't even have to worry about doing that. And so he took the trays to where they were serving the Lord's Supper to individuals that day, and the first young man knelt there to receive the Lord's Supper, and he gave him that tray of juice. He took the cup, and the young man looked up and said, Wow, real wine today. And our deacon chairman was kind of befuddled. You know, he just heard this sermon on Jesus turning the water into wine. He was wondering, is, is this happening again? And he was trying to make sense of it all and went ahead and served all the folks who came that day. It was a unique experience for them. And then he went back and he discovered that the tray of juice had been left in that setup room since Christmas Eve when we have the Lord's Supper at Johnson Ferry. And that juice had fermented over that three-week period. And so Johnson Ferry was able to break ground for a Southern Baptist church in a way, once again, that was different and unique 
But you know, there's strong feelings within our denominational tradition about alcohol. I realize a lot of you don't even know what I'm talking about because you're coming from so many different traditions, but a lot of people have very strong feelings about this. And when you come to a story of Jesus the winemaker, knowing all the very real issues that can concern people concerning alcohol, I mean, let's face it, some of you are struggling with alcohol abuse. Some of you have parents or a spouse or children struggling, and, and it really are, there's, there are real dangers here. And part of how so much legalism occurs within religious people is often out of good intentions, out of concern of the bad things that can result. And one reason within our tradition, a lot of folks have gone beyond biblical in this particular area is out of a good intention, but like all legalisms, it shows a lack of trust in God's Word in understanding how we do apply his word to our everyday life. So with those questions in mind, why in the world would Jesus choose this as his first sign? Well, let's look and see. Verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, where is this? I realize probably most of you have never been to Israel. I hope you will put it on your goal list, to-do list, because you will not believe how faith-enriching it will be to go to the land where these biblical events occurred, and much more important, where biblical prophecy is unfolding today. But Cana is about eight to nine miles from Nazareth. Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. Why was Jesus there with Mary, his mother, and some of his disciples? Why were they there? We don't know. It could be because Nathaniel, one of his disciples, was from Cana. It could be because Cana was just eight or nine miles from Nazareth that Mary had friends and they invited the different members of the family and Jesus told some of his early disciples there, come on and go with me. We don't really know why they were there. But we know that a wedding is a huge event, not only in contemporary American culture, but it was a far bigger event among first century Jews. So they're gathered here at this big, important wedding. And then the problem occurs. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And then his mother said to his servants, to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I love this scene. This is a classic Jewish mom. She's ambitious for her son. Now, she's known all along he's come to be the Savior in the world, and yet he's 30 years old and he's still living in his mama's house, just like some of you. And she's wondering, when is he ever going to get going on doing what he was created, born to do? When's it going to happen? And so they run out of wine. Now, this is a serious issue, folks, because in the first century Jewish culture, it was shameful. I mean, literally scandalous for the host of a wedding to run out of wine because the guests would be insulted. 
they would talk about this family and they would talk about the father of the groom with a sense of shame for years to come. It was scandalous for this to happen. So Mary may be knowing these folks who live just down the road in Cana. She comes to Jesus. She knows that he has tremendous power that has not yet been displayed. And she says they have no wine. Now, Jesus' response to her seems a bit disrespectful. He says, woman, that ain't my problem. I mean, that doesn't really sound compassionate and caring on the part of Jesus. Some of y'all think that's not very nice of Jesus to respond like that. And yet in the first century culture, to use the title woman was actually a title of respect. He was also reminding her that he had to work on his father's time frame, not his mama's time frame. He so he says, look, it's, it's not our issue. It's not yet my time. But ever ambitious for her son, she then turns to the servants of the household and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She's still showing faith. She's hopeful that at last he will get things going. Now, I realize a lot of you are thinking, especially those of you still living at home with mama and daddy, and you're living in that delayed adolescence at 28, 30 years old. And mama and daddy are wondering, are they ever going to get out of the house and grow up and take on adult responsibilities? A lot of you are probably going to gather today that what this sermon is about for you to go home and tell mama and daddy, I'm just trying to be like Jesus. But in reality, I want you to know this. In the first century, when a grown man was still living with his mama, in this case, probably Joseph, his earthly father had died, that young man had the full financial responsibility for the household. So if you have the idea to go home and tell mom and dad that really you're just trying to be like Jesus, then be sure you start paying all the bills and covering all the expenses of that household, and then you really will be like Jesus. So Mary shows she's got some faith here. But also I want you to understand this about weddings. In the first century Jewish culture, the wedding reception was seven days on most occasions. Now, I want you to think about this. The average cost of a wedding in the United States in 2018 was over $33,000. And not only that, it varies in different parts of the culture. In New Mexico, if you live in New Mexico, you can have the cheapest weddings. The average is just a little over 17000 but if you live in Manhattan, it's close to 77000 the cost of a wedding. But that's just the wedding and the reception for a few hours. In the first century culture, the wedding reception lasted seven days. So in today's dollars, if you take that $33,000 plus average, you multiply it by seven, you're talking about hitting about a quarter of a million dollars for the cost of a wedding. This was a big-time important event. And here's another interesting thing. And as the father of only sons, I'm really thankful I didn't live in the first century because it's not the father of the bride that was responsible for this cause. It was the father of the groom in the first century Jewish culture. So imagine that. I have three sons. It would have cost me in today's dollars about $700,000 for my three sons to have that wedding experience. It's extraordinary the investment that they had. I mean, we talk today about how outrageous it is in America, but we don't even come close to the, to the cost and the importance of a first century Jewish wedding. So they got a problem. They're out of wine. And Mary is trying to prod Jesus to finally get going with this ministry she's been anticipating a long time. 
And he says, look, I got to work on my father's time frame. And then she says, well, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. And for some reason, he then does sense it is time. And we read about what happens. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiters. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And then when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good stuff until now. Now, this is a fascinating story. In that culture, the ritual cleansing of the Jews was very important, and so they had to get a lot of water. And that in itself was very important to understand because water was a precious and still is a precious commodity in the Middle East today. And these gallons, 20 to 30 gallon jugs of water were filled to the brim when the, war, when the party would begin, and the Jews would come in and have to go through a ritualistic form of cleansing before they would partake of the food and enjoy the pleasures of that event. So it's very important. So Jesus, first of all, says, fill the water pots to the brim. That is calling on the use of a precious commodity that they might have been short on at this point. And then when that occurs, he then tells them to take to the head waiter what they have drawn out of the water pot. Now, I love this scene. I know I'm showing my age here, but, you know, I have lived a few years, so I may as well do that. But in the ancient world, there was a movie called Father of the Bride. Now, I know most of you probably weren't alive when the movie came out, but it was starring Steve Martin. It's, it's a classic if you want to just have a good laugh, watch that movie. It's really a, a wonderful movie. But one of my favorite movie characters was the wedding coordinator, Franz. Oh, my goodness. What a character he is. Everything just had to be just so. And so I see this Franz kind of personality guy that's kind of the wedding coordinator for this family there in Cana. And the servants take him, what has been drawn out of the water pots, and he is astounded. Because he's thinking, you know, in most wedding parties and receptions, they serve the good wine up front and then as the party really gets going and people are a little toddied up, they start with a little yellowtail and Thunderbird and Ripple and Tubuck and all the cheap wines that just blends in and they don't even notice at that point. But this head waiter says, y'all do it different. You've served the good wine here at the end. One of the things I enjoy doing, it's kind of the devil in me, I know, but when we're out at a nice restaurant, I like to look at the wine list first and just see what's the most expensive wine in the restaurant. The most expensive wine bottle I've ever seen was when we were in the Caymans one time. It's $3,500. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, imagine $3,500 for just one bottle of wine at this meal, then it's gone. But I, I began to ask the waiter about that. Well, I tell you, his eyes lit up. You know, he was just seeing a $700 tip, just right. He was just <laughs> imagining, you know, and he was telling me the glory of that $3,500 bottle of wine. He said, would you like to enjoy it? I said, no. And he said, well, what kind would you like? I said, well, I think we'll pass tonight. Well, I'll tell you. That poor guy, I felt so bad. I mean, you know, he had gotten so excited that we didn't even choose to have any wine. But this was $3,500 wine. Now, I realize there are a lot of men and pastors in my tradition who would say it was unfermented wine. That's nonsense. This was good wine. 
This was the best. And the head waiter is amazed. And Jesus is meeting the need of this family as they are hosting one of the most important events in their life. So that when we come to this verse at the end, we try to make sense of it. Verse 11. This beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, manifesting His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Now folks, listen, are you listening? Don't miss this. This is the first sign of Jesus. The first miracle. A sign is a miracle. And understand this about miracles. Listen now, are you listening? Miracles never cause anyone to believe. Never. Miracles only reveal if a person has an openness to faith or has faith or does not. Look in the Old Covenant. Pharaoh saw all those miraculous plagues under Moses and his heart just got harder. Look at the religious leaders in the days of Jesus. They even saw a dead man raised from the dead four days after he had died. And they just with a hard heart were determined to kill Jesus and kill the man that he had raised. You see, miracles don't cause anyone to believe. Miracles just reveal a person's heart. And if there is a heart that is open to faith in God, it enhances that faith. If your heart, though, is hard-hearted and determined not to trust in God, your heart just becomes harder in seeing the supernatural power of God. It tells us that Jesus' disciples believed in Him because they already had a heart of faith in what they were seeing in Him. But then we come back to the question, why would Jesus choose this? As his first sign, as we talked about earlier, you think about all the heartache and the problems of alcohol abuse, all the problems that occur with, with people abusing something that can be a gift of God. Think, why, why would he choose this? Now listen, are you listening? When the Jews would come to a wedding party or any kind of festival or banquet, the ritual cleansing of water was vitally important. But you see, that was a part of the Old Covenant. For in the Old Covenant, man was to do certain things, obey certain laws in order to be right with God. But Jesus was initiating the New Covenant, and it is symbolized by wine. Because no longer would there just be outward cleansing from dirt, but there would be an inner transformation and cleansing of a new creation in Christ. Now think about it. It makes all the sense in the world. Because when Jesus began his ministry, his first sign, his first miracle had to do with wine. And when Jesus was coming to the end of his earthly ministry and he gathered his disciples together knowing what was to come the next day, the crucifixion, Jesus took wine and he said to those men, this is my blood. 
is my blood. This is going to be shed so that you can be forgiven and all the shame and all the guilt and all the negative aspect of sin, it can be washed away. No matter what you've done, no matter how hideous it still seems to you in the shame and guilt you're dealing with, you can be forgiven. This is the new covenant. Because when a person comes to put their trust in Christ, believing that his shed blood on the cross has literally paid the penalty for our sin and cleanses us from within, we are transformed into a new creation. The cleansing of water represented the old covenant, an outward cleansing. The wine represented the new covenant, an inner cleansing, a new creation that can only come about through Christ's atoning death on the cross. I have a feeling that those disciples on that night, amidst all the wonder of what they were taking in at the Passover, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, and realizing that he was saying to them, that he, that they had come to believe is the Messiah, God, was going to be the sacrifice where a lamb was normally sacrificed. They had to be overwhelmed with that as Jewish men. But I also have a feeling that they thought back to the very first miracle and realized that Jesus chose that as the first sign as a prophetic foreshadowing of what was to come. To realize Christ didn't come to help us work hard to improve our life, to try to be a better person. Christ came to give give his life on the cross and to rise from the dead so that you and I could literally be transformed from the inside out and made to be new, something completely different, like the water transformed into wine. See, for the Jewish people, wine is a symbol of God's blessing. Wine is a symbol of God's prosperity in a person's life. But not only that, wine is a symbol of joy. And for those of you who have come to Christ and you know the difference that Jesus makes in your life, I promise you that when you think about that, there is joy. When you hear a testimony of someone who was living a life in their own strength, trying to plod through life the way they felt was best, And then finally, they come to acknowledge their need for God and trust in Christ. And their life is dramatically transformed. You know, the joy that you see in their face, the gratitude they have for God. All that is symbolized by this first miracle, this first sign of Jesus. But the question today, Has that happened to you? In this room with so many folks from so many backgrounds, with so much baggage in each of our lives, 
Has this happened for you? The good news is that Christ came to give this new wine to all of us when we put our trust in him and what he has done for us through his shed blood on the cross. Yesterday, Ann and I attended the funeral of a man named Reggie Campbell who he began at 50 years old, what's called radical mentoring. This is really a very emotional weekend for me because Reggie was in our church at Johnson Ferry in the early days, and he felt led to go help this startup church called North Point Community Church to get started, and we gave him his blessing in going to do that. But Reggie felt led, so grateful to what God had done in his life to begin what became known as radical mentoring. And I don't know of many men in North Atlanta that have had a greater impact on very gifted, up-and-coming young business guys than Reggie Campbell. And it's been emotional because my middle son was in one of his mentoring groups, and I saw the impact in his life. And because of that, I took the syllabus of what they were doing and talked to Reggie about it and began mentoring young pastors and just adapted the reading, adapted what they did as I meet with young pastors once a quarter over a two-year period. And in the very first group was my son, George, and Jason Dees and four other guys. We're now on our fifth group spending that time with young pastors, pouring into them, and it's been a tremendous joy. But I thought about the impact of that one life because I met Reggie right after he accepted Christ. And folks, he was moving up with AT&T, but he was about to be just another corporate culture train wreck. I've never known a story of more of a wild man. And when his wife finally left him with two kids because she had had enough, he went out in the backyard and he said, well, God, it's me and you. And at that point, at last, he surrendered his life to Christ. And not only did he become an incredibly gifted entrepreneur, and part of the reason so many young businessmen in Atlanta wanted to be in his groups is he was incredibly incredibly successful. But most of all, he represented that radically transformed life. Not a guy that decided who was going to get his life together, but a radically transformed life because of Jesus. How about you? How about the mission of Christ's covenant? And all those folks that you work with during the week, all those people in your neighborhoods, in your apartment complexes. How about all those folks you're interacting with? Christ came to be new wine, to transform us from within so that we could be a completely new creation by the power of God 
so that we could not only know God and have a relationship with him, but so that we could then live a life that builds up others and points them to the truth and shares with them the good news. Christ's first sign and miracle had a lot more to it than first meets the eye. It was really a foreshadowing of why he came in beginning the new covenant of grace as he shared with his disciples the wine at that Passover meal. He said, take this. This is the beginning of the new covenant. And for all of us in Jesus, it has led to a transformed life. Let's pray. Father God, I know, I know you love every single person in this room. You know the challenges they're facing. You know the hardships they're facing. You know the, the sins that tend to enslave them. You know the lifestyle situations that creates all kinds of negative baggage. But Father, today we're so thankful that as we look at this very first miracle of Jesus, we see that you had a very specific reason for beginning with new wine. The symbol of transformation, a new creation in Christ. Father, if there are individuals here today that know they're just still trying to figure out how to make it through life the way they feel is best, may they finally come to you today and say, Lord, I realize I'm never going to figure it out that way. I just want to put my trust in you. I just want to believe that Jesus can make me the man or the woman that you've created me to be. Oh, Lord, may it happen right now. And Father, for those who have tasted this new wine in Christ, oh Lord, may this be a day when they say, by the conviction of your Holy Spirit, I want to share this good news. I want to share about this new covenant in Jesus. I want to share the gospel of what Christ has done for me. I want people to experience what true life change can be all about. And Lord, may you give a fresh heart to this fellowship, this church, to think about the thousands all around this community in North Atlanta through relationships in this room that need to have the good news of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for how you're blessing this church. Thank you for how you have your hand on this church. And Lord, we just thank you for what you're going to do through this church this year and decades to come. But we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If some of you would like to talk to Jason. He's back there by the sound booth, maybe just about being sure of a relationship with Christ, of being a new creation in Christ, or simply just being a part of this fellowship 
that is seeking to impact Buckhead and North Atlanta in a wonderful way. He'll be glad to visit with you after this service. Let's stand as we worship the Lord together.